Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Welcome back, Tegan. Thank you so much, Megan. For Welcome back me. to your apartment. <laughs> I don't think I've left my apartment in five days. That's impressive. Thank you. I'm like, uh, like, COVID lockdowning for myself. But just, just a personal lockdown. Just a personal one. Going outside is too much work. <laughs> yeah, I had to go into work yesterday and the day before that. So I left my house. I actually, I left my house today because I'm here yeah. in your apartment, which is not my house. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. And I am glad I'm here too because we get to record our podcast, Woo-hoo. which is what you're listening to right now. <laughs> Destination Murder. Mordor. Mordor. <laughs> Yeah, this is our podcast. If you're new here, we're awkward. Sorry. Uh, if you're old here, you already knew that. Um, uh, yeah, so this is Destination Murder. We're a true crime travel podcast. So each week we travel to a new country or region and cover a true crime event that happened there. Most of the time it's murder, but as we've learned quite quickly, sometimes... Some countries that we travel to don't even have murder cases. So it's no. just true crime. True crime. Sometimes it's not even crime. Sometimes it's just a historical event. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a little bit of history, a little bit of murder. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Destination, Destination Murder Pod. <laughs> Destination Murder Pod. Um, Facebook is Destination Murder. Um, we don't really use our Twitter, so I'm not going to even tell you that. Um, so yeah, give us a follow, subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. And let's dive in. I have a murder this week. I don't know about you. I do have a murder this week. I have multiple murders this week. You're first though. Am I? Yeah, because I went first last week. Alrighty. Well... Um, I am going to Jersey, um, not New Jersey, the original Jersey, um, and Megan already knows what case I'm doing, um, because because I know it. I am covering the Beast of Jersey. I would recommend whatever you're doing right now to stop other than listening to this podcast and open up Google and type in the Beast of Jersey mask and look at it. Before I, or while I'm telling this story, so you have an idea of just how scary this man was. So I just did exactly what Tegan recommended me. I don't know if you um, could hear my keyboard clicking in the background, but it definitely looks as though um, the Halloween, like Michael Myers mask, was based off of this mask. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a rubber mask, so it almost looks like it's melting. Yeah, with like weird hair attached to it. It looks like... It's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, I I will explain what he looks like, um, but the visual representation is 10 times worse than my verbal um, 
description. But anyways, um, my sources this week were Wikipedia, History Daily, and uh, The True Crime Enthusiast. And I did listen to a little bit of My Favorite Murder to get me in the mood, because um, they also covered this case. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jersey first. Um, so Jersey, officially the Ballywick of Jersey, is an island and self-governing British crown dependency near the coast of northwest France. It's the largest of the Channel Islands, and the Ballywick consists of the main island of Jersey and some surrounding in uninhabited islands and rocks. Jersey was a part of a duchy, duchy, which I had to look up. Duchy? Duchy, maybe? It is the territory of a duke or duchess. A dukedom, if you will. Oh, interesting. So the Duchy of Normandy, it was a part of. Interesting. Whose dukes became kings of England in uh, 1066. And after Normandy was lost by the kings of England in the 13th century, the ducal title surrendered to France. Jersey remained loyal to the English crown, though it never became a part of the Kingdom of England. Interesting. I can't believe that, like, people study that as their, like, profession in university. I know. And where is it going to take you? Like, I'm sorry, like, but, like, I'm really confused about that. Like, when you study history, like... It's kind of just a hobby at that point, isn't it? Sorry if you have, like, a history... It's well, really honestly, fascinating. Like, tell if us, you can because... get paid for doing that, that's awesome. But, like, what what jobs are there? Just a researcher, they... I think. Like, a professor. Which would be cool because I would definitely take, like, 11th century, like, English history, like, Middle Ages history, because I know absolutely nothing about that. Anyways, the island is divided into parishes, and there's 12 of them, uh, the largest of which is St. Quen, and the smallest is St. Clement. Uh, The island is characterized by several valleys, there are several, several smaller islands, uh, smaller island groups that are part of the Ballywick. Um, however, unlike the smaller um, islands of the Ballywick of Guernsey, none of these are permanently inhabited. Jersey is a self-government governing parliamentary democracy under a constitutional monarchy with its own financial, legal, and judicial systems and the power of self-determination. The island has a separate relationship with the crown and uh, than other crown dependencies, and the lieutenant governor represents the queen there. Jersey is not a part of the United Kingdom, but has an international identity separate from that of the UK, but the UK is constitutionally responsible for the defense of Jersey. So it's not a part of the United Kingdom? No. But it has to look after it. Is it like what like Guam is to the US, sort of? Or I like Puerto so. Rico? I think it's kind of like Canada in a way. Like it, it's self-governing, um, but they have, they're called the lieutenant there instead of. Um, but it's it's like in between Canada and like Scotland. Yeah. Vert for in terms of like UK governance. Yeah, and they still use like the pound and stuff there. Yeah. Um, but basically, like England is responsible for looking after them if they get like attacked. I guess because interesting. If France invades. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, so getting on to the murder now. Well, not it's not even murder. <laughs> so in 1960, 
the island of Jersey was terrorized by a real-life boogeyman. He was prowling the neighborhood streets and waiting for women and children to be alone and vulnerable. Dubbed the Beast of Jersey, he would go over 10 years before being caught. So the reign of terror began for Islanders in 1957. Um, in November, a 29-year-old nurse waiting for a bus in the mont la area was attacked by a man wearing a covering over his face and had a thick Irish accent. She was dragged into a field and sexually assaulted. She was um, severely injured and needed stitches. Um, and then the following year in March, a 20-year-old woman walking home from the bus stop was attacked in a parish of Trinity um, a rope was placed around her neck, and she was also dragged into a field and raped. Following that, in July, a 31-year-old woman was attacked walking uh, home from the bus stop, um, attacked in the signature fashion of having a rope placed around her neck and dragged into a field and raped. Uh, another woman um, walking home in August 1959, and a 28-year-old woman attacked in a parish um in St. Martin's in October 1959. The 28-year-old who was attacked in St. Martin's was able to fight him off quickly enough for him to flee um, because he was startled, but the other woman was not so lucky. So detectives started noticing uh, several reoccurring, reoccurring themes throughout the each description of the attacker given by the victims. Uh, that led them to believe that they were all committed by the same man. Each victim agreed that the man was aged about early to mid-40s, he was about five foot six tall, and had an Irish accent. Some of the victims described the attacker as wearing a rope or a cord around his waist and often restrained the victims by tying their hands together. All of them described the attacker as smelling musty. Oh, I remember that part. Ew. Which is, like, so gross. Like, how, like, strong of a smell do you have to have for, like, literally, like, every single person you've attacked notice that you smell of must? Yeah. And that's not a great smell. Ugh. Also, he kind of, like, give me Golden State Killer vibes because, like, he would wear the rope that he would, like, attack them with around his waist. So, like, he had it, like, he had his hands free so that he could subdue them, and then he had it, like, oh. easily accessible to, mm -hmm. like, like, he knew exactly what he was doing. So, coupled together with the pattern of placing a rope around the victim's necks and using the location of a field for the assault, the detectives suspected that they had a serial rapist. Um, the Beast of Jersey started escalating when he began attacking indoors. Uh, he changed his preference of victims, and attacks increased both in frequency and ferocity. So in the early hours of February 14, 1960, a 12-year-old boy who was asleep um, at home in the region of Grand Vaux was awoken by a man who had climbed through his bedroom window. The boy had a rope placed around his neck, and then he was led outside and assaulted. Then, the following month, a 25-year-old woman walking to a bus stop uh, was offered a lift in a rover car by a man claiming to be a doctor on his way to pick up his wife. She accepted, and during the journey, she noticed him wearing a cap and a duffel uh, coat and gloves, but she could not make out his features due to the darkness. He drove the car to a field, overpowered her, punching her, threatening to kill her, and tying her hands behind her head. 
She was then dragged out of the uh, car into the field and raped. And then she was placed back into the car um, and she uh, was able to escape um, from the vehicle and scream for help. But the attacker managed to drive off. Sped away in his getaway car. Yep. Hmm. So then in March 1960, a 43-year-old mother and a 14-year-old daughter who lived in a fairly isolated cottage in St. Martin Parish underwent a horrific experience. The mother was awoken at about 12.30 a.m. by a telephone ringing downstairs. She went down to answer it, but when she lifted the receiver, she heard nothing but a click and then the dial tone. She went back to bed, but was awoken an hour later after um, hearing the sounds downstairs. She started downstairs to investigate, but as she reached the bottom of the staircase, the lights abruptly went out and she heard someone in the living room moving about. In the dark, she made for the telephone to call the police, but the phone lines had been cut. Then she was confronted by a figure uh, of a man who grabbed her and demanded money. He was very rough with her and threatened to kill her, but left the woman immediately when he heard uh, her daughter coming downstairs to investigate the commotion. The woman took the chance to flee and raise alarm at a nearby farmhouse, and upon returning to the cottage, found her daughter, um, who was still alive but had been raped uh, horrifically. Uh, oh. Yeah. And, like, this so one's... she, like, ran away to get help, but then left her daughter in the house with him. Yeah. But also, like, that, like that, like, that's literally, that entire story is straight out of, like, a horror show your phone rings and then you go to pick it up and then it's nothing but a dial tone and then you hear a noise downstairs later and then the the lights get cut and then you go to for the phone again and the the uh the line is cut and like it's like he was he called the house to like test if there was someone in the house to pick it up to pick the phone up and like see if it was a woman and then he was like okay so now i have to cut the phone lines yeah and the power it's that's like the story where the call is like coming from inside Inside the the house house. yeah it's spooky yeah in april a 14 year old girl in laroque awoke in her bedroom to find a man wearing a strange looking mask um though he took it off when the child started to scream um yeah so she screamed when he when she woke up and then he fleed because she screamed and woke her parents up and then in july of that year an eight-year-old boy was adopted from his home by a man wearing a raincoat who assaulted him and then led him home and left him on the doorstep the attack stopped for the rest of the year but began again in february 1961 there was an attack on a 12-year-old boy in the mont Cochon area, and an attack on an 11-year-old boy in the parish of St. Saviour in March of the same year, and a brutal rape of an 11-year-old girl in St. Martin's in April. Oh my god. That's terrifying. He's, like, attacking women and children. Yeah. And, like, boys and girls. Yeah. So, now the Beast of Jersey, who had been at large for over three years, um, the police investigation getting nowhere near to catching... Um, him, they, the police started to feel a lot of pressure from the uh, press and the public. No kidding. It's like you're on an island of like not that many people. Yeah. And this guy's running rampant. Like, how could you not have found him yet? I know, right? Just go around sniffing everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Round up all musty? the men in town and smell them one by one and see if any of them smell musty. Yeah, there's 
97,000 or 98,000 people who live in Guernsey or in Jersey. So in the 50s, it was definitely probably less than that. that. Yeah, because yeah. that was in 2011. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. So the police um, summoned the help from Scotland Yard. Uh, Detective Superintendent Jack Mannings um, came over to help them, and one of his first actions was to appeal to all islanders to become detectives and look out for the following description. So the beast always struck at night, and um, up to the point that he had only struck on moonlit weekends between the hours of 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. So he's committing crimes by moonlight? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, like, poetic. I know. But in a bad way. Scary man. Um, he appeared to have an intimate knowledge of the island, particularly with the eastern area. He's about 40 to 45 years old, about 5 foot 6, and a mustache with a medium build. He was described wearing a low thigh-length jacket or a raincoat, which gave off a musty smell, and a peaked cap and gloves. His face was either always covered with a mask or a scarf, um, and he carried a torch with him during the attacks and his method followed a distinct pattern. His victims were selected carefully, and the usual method of entry was through a bedroom window. Once inside, the man, w- the man was fast and silent, and usually blindfolded and tied up the victim's hands. In each case, a rope was placed around the victim's neck, and they were taken to a nearby field and suffered um, from the sexual assault and then returned home. The assailant spoke lots during his attack with a voice that was described as soft or an Irish accent, and he had mentioned at various times a wife, a dead mother who he died who had died of drink that he'd killed before, and that he made a point of saying that he either dropped his cigarettes or his lighter. Jersey is not a large island, indeed um, is only less than 46 square miles in total. Um, and it stands to reason that someone would have known or at least suspected someone who matched at least this part of the description. That's so weird that he, like, just chatted the whole time. Yeah, which you'll find out soon why. Every possible man was looked at. All men with the criminal record were questioned and interviewed, but uh, still that did not bring the police any closer to finding the the beast. That's so weird. There was no more attacks for two years, but in April 1963, he returned attacking a nine-year-old boy in St. Savior in his familiar M.O. Another attack in St. Savior in November 1963 on an 11-year-old boy followed, then he went uh, underground again. But he was back in 1964 attacking a 10-year-old girl in the Trinity Parish, and an attack on a 16-year-old boy followed in August, and then the attacks stopped again for another two years. Weird. You know, what I mean, what's the frequency between attacks? Like is it like one a month or one every couple weeks or is it longer than uh, that? It's like every couple months. Okay. Um, like, but like he also like can go like a period of time without it. Yeah. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But is he off island or something? Interesting. No, maybe you never know. Mm. Um. So there, in 1966, the police received a strange letter from an author claiming to be the Beast of Jersey. So this is what the letter said. My dear sir, 
I think that it is just the time to tell you that you are wasting your time as every time I have done what you, uh, I've done what I always intended to do and remember it will not stop at this, but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time let the moon shine very bright in September because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I'm not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September and I will give you all the clues. Just see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely, wait and see. That's so foreboding. Yep. And spooky. Yeah, very spooky. See, he's very spooky, but then it's almost like he's a wimp. What do you mean? Like with his soft voice and like complaining about his mother and and stuff. Oh, yeah. That's true. As if he's a sheep in wolf's clothing. (laughs) Other way around. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what like a lot of people... I don't know why I'm saying this, but this is what I've come up with in my mind, that like a lot of people take advantage and set, assault people and rape people because they're trying to gain power back in their lives yeah. and control. And so they're usually very like insecure until um, they, they can overpower someone. Yeah. And, and they take everything little, out on that one person. Yeah. And if it's a little kid, then it's going to be a little kid unfortunately so horrible um so there was uh, a savage rape of a 15 year old girl in the trinity parish in august 1966 as the letter had promised the attack mirrored the previous ones strange long scratches regularly spaced and always parallel were found on the victim's torsos for the first time in in his events or in his attacks following this attack there remained the longest lull in the series as there was no more reported attacks for the remainder of the decade so four years but then he was back again in 1970 um in august of that year when a 13 year old boy was awakened um by his uh, at his home by a torch shining in his face the beast made the boy get out of bed and took him to a field at the rear of the house he then placed his raincoat on the ground made the boy remove his pajamas and assaulted him the boy was returned home and raised the alarm the following morning at 8 a.m. after having been threatened by the assailant to remain very quiet because if you don't, someone will harm your mother and father. The boy was very distressed and disheveled and offered a description of what had happened that was all too common now. This time, the assailant had black spiky hair and a terrifying mask on. The boy also had the same scratches on his face and body, um and was uh, was found on the victim in the 1966 attack. Again, most of the island was interviewed, and nearly 30,000 people were all spoken to, but still he was not caught. Holy smokes. Uh, the night of uh, July 10th, 1971, had started as a routine night shift for Jersey police officer John Riseborough and, Tim, er, and Tom McGinn. Out on mobile patrol duties focused in the around the St. Helier region. At 9, 11.45 p.m., they had pulled up to a traffic light where 
A small Morris 1100 saloon car shot past them at high speeds, driving through the red light and driving in a very erratic manner. The officers immediately chased the Morris at high speeds for several miles. During this pursuit, the Morris car sideswept several vehicles, drove on the wrong side of the road, and even drove down a footpath at high speeds to try and shake off the police. Oh, wow. I know, right? Obviously, he has something to hide. Exactly. So, the two police officers who rode off their own patrol cars as a result of the pursuit gave uh, chase to the fleeing driver of the Morris on foot and managed to catch him at, after one of the officers got him in a low rugby tackle. <laughs> so, they just, like, took him. I think they, like, basically took him out at the knees. They dove nice. at him. The driver struggled, but was ultimately arrested and taken back to the police headquarters. My question is, though, when he tackled him, did he smell musty? Well, you're about to hear about that. Okay. So it was um, only when they got the suspect back to the police station did they see how the man looked and dressed. He was wearing an old musty raincoat that had one-inch nails protruding from both shoulders and the lapels of the coat. Okay, that's like Freddy Krueger or michael myers yeah. stuff and that's what the lines were the because yeah the scratches so that if he ever was to get caught if someone tried to like grab his, grab shoulder, his shoulder or grab his wrist they would get stabbed oh. by the nails um so he was wearing cloth bands around each wrist that had the nails protruding um and he was wearing old trousers tucked into socks carpet slippers and woolen gloves when he, when the suspect emptied the pockets of the coat, it got even stranger. Removed from the raincoat was a torch with black tape covering the front to provide only a narrow shaft of light, two lengths of uh, sash cord, a peaked woolen cap, and several empty cigarette packets, rolls of adhesive tape, and a black wig with stiff, spiky hair. With mounting suspicion that they had at last found the Beast of Jersey, the suspicion became overwhelming when they removed the final item from the raincoat. It was the homemade horrific mask. Oh. So let me tell you who this man is. So Edward John Lewis Paisnell, a native Jerseyman who came from an affluent family, um, he was 46 years old and was a building contractor well-known throughout the island. Married with a daughter and two stepchildren, the only, skirt with, uh, the only skirt with a criminal record was when he had served a month's imprisonment during a German occupation on the island in the Second World War for stealing food to distribute to starving families. So, of course, no one's going to suspect him. What a great guy. I know, right? So his wife, Joan, had run a foster home for children called La Preference and had met Edward when he helped as a handyman uh, at the the foster home. The children knew him as Uncle Ted, uh, who was always sweet and uh, who always had sweets and gifts for them, played with them and dressed up as Santa Claus every year to distribute presents to the children at the home. Edward had married Joan in 1959, but after the birth of their child, they separated but remained living in the same home and with the same name. Um, Edward built an annex onto the house where he, where the couple lived, um, considering uh, consisting of an office in a large sitting room area um, in which he lived. So, like, he kind of, like, built a little house off of the house for He's him to live in. Got his man cave. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, do, 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 do. Um, he was considered overall a kind and considerate man who was good with children, but one who had never let go of the roaming spirit that he had since childhood, keeping irregular hours and often going fishing um, or for walks at night. Sexually, his wife considered him to be normal and, if anything, to have a very low sex drive, although at the time of his arrest, Edward did have one mistress. Interesting. I know. So, when questioned about his strange apparel, he was asked to get, explain his actions on the night, and he was arrested. Edward gave strange answers. He said that he'd been on his way to an orgy and borrowed the car um, to get there to avoid anyone seeing and identifying him. On the way there, the nails and the clothing, he said, were for defense against anyone using martial arts to attack him. Um, he refused to say anything about the mask and the wig, but... It was noticed that he had adhesive tape on the mask that matched up with, like, tape on his face. So he, like, taped it to his face. Ew. Yeah, yeah, right? The fact that he taped it on feels so weird, even though it's, like, not weird at all. I know. Well, it's just, like, another step that he took that, like, he clearly, like, was methodical about, like, all of this. Like, he did everything for a reason. super odd. Yeah. Uh, and it, with the tape on his face, they clearly knew that he had had the mask on at some point during that night. Um, he was locked up, and the police set out to search for his home, but now quietly convinced that they had the Beast of Jersey under arrest. Um, what they found at his home astounded them. In Edward's bedroom, they found a locked secret room that he had built. Opening it, it immediately struck the police that it smelt musty. I remember this. Yeah. This part. Inside the room hung several items of old clothing, including a blue tracksuit and an old fawn raincoat, homemade wigs and hats and false eyebrows. There was a camera hanging on the hook and several photographs of various houses. There was several items of black magic paraphernalia, a homemade altar, a sizable library about the occult and black magic rituals, and a very large curved wooden sword hanging on the wall. Which is spooky. I want to know how you get things to smell musty, though. Like, do you just, like... Is it, like, moldy? Yeah, it's, like, things don't dry Dry out. And there's, like, no airflow. So he probably put all his, like, like his musty raincoat in that room while it was still wet. And then just, like... I I think it's, like, a little bit of mold. Yeah, because I wonder why it's not called moldy. Yeah. Is it just a nicer way of saying like your clothes smell like mold? I guess like... Oh, having a stale, moldy, or damp smell oh, is what okay. musty means. Okay, so it's all three. Yeah. Edward was eventually charged of 13 counts of rape, uh, indecent assault, sodomy against six victims, with all but one being a minor. There was no question of an insanity defense. It was revealed just how cunning Edward was and how pre-planned his attacks were. He photographed the house that he had earmarked as targets to attack children sometimes years in advance so that's why he was able to go such a long time between because he was literally stalking them and he was like planning them so he was getting off on that without oh yeah um this explained how he knew exactly which room to go to and how not to disturb the occupants how to access the property um edward then kept these photographs as trophies of his crimes he pretended to have an Irish accent, 
um, while committing the attacks, dropped cigarette packets, and gave random misleading details about himself to victims. In reality, these were all red herrings to to lead police away from his trail. He was uh, a native of Jersey, and he was a non-smoker. Interesting. That's why he was talking so much, was to... Um, lead people to give like from away. yeah it's interesting though because like when someone smokes you can smell it on them but like, with the smell of the mass they probably couldn't have even distinguished true but you could smell it you can smell it like on their breath and yeah. stuff and just like on their skin if they're a really heavy smoker yeah i don't know that's a good point yeah good point um the nails in the raincoat were placed in such positions to injure someone grabbing him. They were designed to help him get away if possibly interrupted. It also merged that Edward had been one of 13 men on the island who refused to give any fingerprints during the search of the be- uh, for the beast. And that was as a right of uh, a Jersey resident at that time. Which they, they should have immediately looked at those 13 people who weren't going to give their fingerprints. Yeah, it's tough because, like, it's your right not to unless you ha- unless there's a war known against you. So police have to respect that right. But also it's very fishy if you don't. Yeah. Especially um, when you, you are viewed as an upstanding citizen. Yeah. Especially an upstanding, upstanding citizen with children. Yeah. You'd think that he would be the first one to want to prove his innocence. Yeah, exactly. So on November 29th... No- uh, 1971, it took just 38 minutes for the guilty verdict to be reached against Edward on all charges, and he was taken away to await his sentencing. He, uh, he was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment for his monstrous crimes, and he was uh, uh, sent to Winchester Prison to begin his sentence. Edward appealed his conviction and sentence in September 1972, but was a uh, but was unsuccessful with his appeal, and he returned to prison to serve out his sentence. He was released in 1991 after being a model prisoner and returned to Jersey. However, local feeling was still so strong by the islanders who remembered Edward's reign of terror that he eventually was ran out and moved to the Isle of Wight, where he died of a heart attack in 1994. Yeah, what do you think? You're going to return to Jersey where everyone on the island like remembers being scared literally for their life (laughs) and literally hates you yeah so that was my story wow that mask is terrifying i know right like when i first heard this story i was like yeah that's kind of spooky but i think it took it it to a whole nother level once Once you actually saw it yeah yeah because like that's like literally terrifying like that is what my nightmares are made of is having someone look like that wake me up by standing at the end of my bed like, with literally. like yeah you'd think it, you were in a horror movie or, yeah. or a nightmare or i'd be something. like i'm still asleep clearly yeah especially with like the nails sticking out of his coat pocket yeah the thing that would be like okay i'm not dreaming is the smell yeah spooky spooky scary skeletons <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, megan where are you taking us I'm taking us to Uruguay. Or Uruguay? Uruguay? I'm going to say Uruguay because that's always how I've said it. That's how I say it too. Okay. So maybe it's Uruguay. Um, So my sources for this week are Wikipedia, the World Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 2 by Susan Hall, 
um, an lr21.com article, another lr21.com article, and uh, elobservador.com. My case this week is a little bit short because uh, Uruguay does not have a lot of serial killers or true crime cases, um, at least not in English. So, buckle up, I'm taking us to Uruguay. In the early morning hours of January 1st, 1992, the body of 26-year-old Ana Luisa Miller Cicero was found along the beach of the coastal resort neighborhood of Solimar. Ana Luisa had been a teacher and had a degree in history. Her killer had strangled her to death, suffocating her with a man's tie that was left wrapped around her neck. Her autopsy revealed that she'd been placed on the beach around 8 a.m. that morning. So obviously the first suspect is her boyfriend. So police looked into her boyfriend, who was an engineer named Hugo Sapelli, and um, immediately he was the first suspect in the murder, and so police gave him a polygraph test, but after uh, passing the polygraph test, the police were like, oh, okay, well, you passed. I guess see you later. (laughs) Because they had nothing else left on him, so they had to let him go. There was no evidence other than the tie left with Ana Luisa's body, and even that didn't link Hugo to the crime, and the case went cold. Nine months later, on September 20th, 1992, 15-year-old Andrea Castro had been at the popular England disco with her friends in Montevideo, which is the capital city of Uruguay. After leaving the club, she disappeared, only for her remains to be found soon after. Just like Ana Luisa, she was strangled and the killer's tie was left around her neck. The two murders were nearly identical, which indicated that the same person had committed them. But police couldn't find any trace of him, so again, the case went cold. That's unfortunate. It's just like cold after cold after cold. Yeah. I mean, there might be more details, but I couldn't find anything in English. (laughs) Um, So... On February 28, uh, sorry, no, on February 8th, 1993, 22-year-old journalism student Maria Victoria Williams was at the bus stop on her way to work. As she was waiting for the bus, a man ran out to her, distraught and asking for help. The man said that his grandmother was very ill and was having a heart attack and he needed her help to like resuscitate her. Maria knew this man as he was her neighbor, Pablo Jose Goncalves Gallarta, and she rushed to help him with his grandmother. But Maria would never come out of his house alive. So let me tell you about Pablo. Pablo José Goncalves Gallarta was born in Bilbao, Spain, in March of 1970. He was born to Uruguayan parents. His father, Hamlet Goncalves, was a diplomat representing Uruguay in Spain at the time of Pablo's birth. He had three brothers, and along with his father and mother, they were a family of six, and they moved around a lot. So Pablo moved around a lot with his family for his dad's work, moving from Spain to Peru to Paraguay to Sweden to Brazil, and then finally back to Uruguay to the capital city of Montevideo. 
He spent his youth there and went on to study economic sciences at the University of the Republic in Montevideo. During the early 1990s, he owned a motorcycle repair shop and lived in Montevideo, where he began to commit murders. That's all the information I have on him. (laughs) That's so weird. I wonder what, like, drove him to start committing murders. Yeah, I don't know. Because he seemed to have a great life. I don't know. Sometimes there's just... Something in that. Yeah. I think sometimes it's nature. Sometimes it's nurture. Sometimes sometimes it's it's a combination. Wow. I'm so glad we're on the same page, Megan. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So all three possibilities. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't rule any of them out. (laughs) So by the time... Pablo lured Maria into his house in February of 1993. He had killed both Ana Luisa and Andrea Castro, leaving his ties tied around their neck. So now back to where we left off with Maria. The 22-year-old Maria Victoria Williams rushed to help Pablo with his grandmother. But as soon as she entered his house, after he was like, call 911, call 911, or whatever emergency number they have in Uruguay, Um, As soon as she turned around, she was struck over the head, and he disoriented her and strangled her to death. He shoved her head in a plastic bag and tied his tie around her neck, leaving it there to be found with her body. He then moved her body into Roosevelt Park, where her body was found four days later. In the meantime, Pablo had fled fled the country to Brazil, where two of his brothers lived. He stayed with them in the city of Port. Porto Al- Al- Alegre? Porto Alegre <laughs> in Rio Grande do Sul. Back home in Montevideo, the police, however, had linked Pablo to Maria's murder. Uruguayan and Brazilian officials worked together to track Pablo down, and he was captured in Brazil. He was then transferred back to Montevideo, where he was interrogated relentlessly by the police. Investigators searched Pablo's home and found a series of ties that matched the ones found on the bodies of Maria, Andrea, and Ana Luisa. These ties were said to have been his father's in some of my sources, so I'm not really sure why he would have had his father's ties at his house. That's some daddy issues right there. (laughs) Oh my god, that's so weird. Maybe his, like, like, maybe his father had died. Maybe. By then, and so he had his clothes. So whether they were his father's ties or his, the jury didn't really care because in court, this was used as one of the key pieces of evidence against Pablo um, to convict him. So in 1993, Pablo faced trial. He pled not guilty to all three charges and his lawyers argued that his confessions to the police were given under duress because he was being interrogated and basically tortured um, to give out his confessions. I'm not sure if he did confess to the police, but he was, like, interrogated quite brutally. Or so he says. Or what Megan could find on the internet. (laughs) What I could find on the internet, yes. Pablo was ultimately found guilty, however, and was sentenced to 30 years in prison for all three murders. He was transferred around from prison to prison for a while, but one thing I did want to note is that he enjoyed temporary leaves from prison, and seems to have been given lovely consideration when he was being transferred between prisons so that he was never too far from his relatives. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Although he was attacked and stabbed 26 times by <laughs> inmates. Oh my god. So while he was given good treatment by the authorities, 
not so much the prisoners. Yeah. I'm not sure if prisoners without diplomat parents get these luxuries, but who knows? I, not that getting stabbed 26 times is a luxury, but the other the other parts. Yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder why they were so aggressive towards him. I am not sure because it was in Spanish and didn't translate. Properly. Well, because like, like you know, like usually like people like that who are. Um, like attacked in prison are usually because they're like child like or he like he pissed someone yeah, off and they wanted to get back cocky. to him yeah maybe he had diplomat uh, entitlement growing up in a life of luxury and did not know how to conform to the rules of prison yeah well he actually said um about like his childhood he's like i think like god gave me the gift of like a good childhood to make up for the fact that i would spend the rest of my life in prison (laughs) um well maybe if you were just a good person then you never would have had to go to prison yeah so throughout his whole time in prison uh pablo denied any guilt in 2000 he published a letter from prison to the press and media in response to an article that was published about him and his crimes The article was about his murders and from what I can tell was quite illustrative and went into quite a few details and maybe even some speculation about Pablo and his victims thoughts and feelings during the time of the crime. So this obviously like sent Pablo into a rage. He was like very annoyed. So he wrote a letter to the press. In his letter response to this article, Pablo says, enough. No more gratuitous assaults. No more lies. No more misleading public opinion. He then goes on to respond seemingly line by line to the article about him, trying to poke holes in the article and scold the journalist for writing such a quote-unquote novelistic piece about him. He was like talking about the first, his first victim's boyfriend and was like talking about this umbrella that apparently was a piece of evidence and then like how the umbrella didn't exist or that ooh, maybe the umbrella was given to Ana, Ana Luisa by her boyfriend, Hugo. And then he was saying that, oh, the journalist said, when I said goodbye to my family, December 31st, 1991, in fact, I said goodbye to my family. January 1st, 1992. He didn't even get the year right. It's like, yes, because it was like the next day. It was like the party and you left. I can now understand why he was stabbed 27 times. We love a serial killer writing to... We love when a serial killer can write, as you may have learned last week. We don't actually love it. Yeah, and this week. Both of our cases had letters to... To people. Yeah. But I'm not even kidding, Tegan. This letter is 18 pages long. Absolutely no way. (laughs) Yes. I... The letter was written in Spanish, and I, like, copied it all and pasted it into a Word document to see, like, how long it was because the page that I was reading it off was just scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. 18 pages long. Just his letter. It... He really dissected it. Line he, by yeah, line. he really wanted to like prove this journalist wrong. So in 2012, uh, Pablo's defense attorneys requested an early release, which was denied. But in June of 2016, at the age of 46, and after spending only 23 years out of his 30-year sentence in prison, Pablo was released from prison. Some of my sources said that he'd completed his full sentence by the time of release, 
but this math doesn't add up unless there's weird legal stuff and 30 years in prison actually only means 23 years in prison <laughs> did is it kind of like here where it's like time serve like while he was waiting trial or whatever it could be um but from what i understood he was sentenced in like 1993 which was like only a year after he was arrested well there goes that point <laughs> yeah so unless unless that was wrong in my sources or i misunderstood it because it was translated from spanish <laughs> So his freedom didn't last long, though, because in 2017, he was arrested in Paraguay for carrying cocaine and an unregistered weapon. Uh Uh-oh. And I think he might still be in jail because that's all the further information I could find about that. I would say he probably is because he probably has a long sentence for cocaine. So that is the story of Uruguay's first serial killer. And the murders of Maria Victoria Williams, Andrea Castro, and Ana Luisa Miller Cicero. Wow, good job. Anyways. Um, I recently started to watch, well, there's a lot of things I've been watching recently, but last night, the Netflix show You came out. Have you watched that? Uh, I watched the first season and then I didn't watch the second season. The second season is pretty good as well. It's very different than the first season, but it's like kind of the same thing, like same. Um, but I won't give any spoilers, but I was just at wit's end with this show last night when I was watching it because season three, don't get me wrong, I think everyone should be vaccinated with, with the COVID vaccine, but they just worked in this pro-vaccination message into episode three of this tv show that is literally about a guy that stalks and obsesses with girls and like murders people and it was just the most uncomfortable like messaging and it just came out of literally nowhere and they're like weird really weird lines like the doctor in the show is like even in the age of covid people don't want to get the shots (laughs) and then like because they, they made this, like, pro-vax message about, like, the measles vaccine and not yeah. the COVID vaccine, I guess, to be more, less, um, you know, aggravating or whatever. I don't know. Um, but just, like, the dialogue was so off. And I was like, who paid them to, like, do this? Because this is, like, completely out of left field. It, the dialogue was just insufferable. <laughs> That's so strange. And part of me, I don't know why, but I feel like they're the people who watch that show are not people who are anti-vax i mean maybe it's like people who if like they don't have the vaccine it's because they aren't eligible because they're too young like they're like 13 or 14 or they just like haven't gotten around to it or they like don't think that they need it because they're like young and healthy maybe that's like the thing but it was just it just came out of nowhere yeah, that's really weird. And it was really weird. Strange. And it was like the entire show was like focused around this like pro-vaccination. <laughs> How many episodes like, did you watch? I watched three yesterday. Yeah, that's not too bad. So that was kind of like I tried to watch the new season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm-hmm. And I like couldn't watch the first episode. I thought they canceled it. No, it got... Um, Picked up by Netflix or something? Or? Uh, NBC, I think. Oh, okay. Um, But... Like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is, like, always, like, very funny and light and, like, 
positive and they're like tackling like the black lives matter and like police Mm. brutality and stuff and like yes like it's important to talk about that kind of stuff but i wasn't expecting because this show has never kind of they've touched on topics like that that, but like it's never been that serious yeah and like rosa quits the being a police officer because of like the brutality and stuff yeah and like i was just like looking for something light to watch and I was like, like this oh, is... I need to be in a different mindset yeah. to watch this. Yeah, like me and my sister were watching it and we were like, okay, no, we're just going to save this for another date because this is not what we need to be watching right now. Yeah. So I was watching New Girl. Um, recently, I finished New Girl. Um, but it was like that. It was like the show that I watched when I like wasn't in the mood for like anything too heavy but I still want to kind of like a feel-good show and to be like kind of like cr- cry over their breakups in the show but then like it's all fine yeah just something light yeah and it's like one of those like you can go back and watch it and you know what's going to happen but it's not boring and it's like kind of comforting yeah well I'd actually never watched New Girl like front start to finish oh before I'd only ever seen up to like episode or season four and there's seven seasons the last season was kind of like a write-off, though. It was only eight episodes. Well, didn't it get canceled as well? Yeah. And they didn't get to, fin- they didn't get to finish the show that they want how they wanted to. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I kind of got the impression about that. Yeah. It's so weird to me that Zoe Deschanel is sisters with the Bones. Broken Bones, and she's dating a property brother. I know. What is her life? I don't know which property brother she's dating. Are they but... twins? Pardon? Aren't the Property Brothers twins? They are. So she might as well be dating both of them. Yeah. Pro- like, why isn't it called Property Twins? That doesn't have the same ring to it. No, it doesn't. Apparently they have a third brother that's like super emo or goth or something. Yes, I saw that too. Yeah. Just like uh, Nicolas Cage's son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw, you might have sent me this TikTok, but it was like... Um, this movie it was like a Nicolas Cage movie. I don't know what one it was, but it's like this attractive lady, and this girl's like, he looks at you just like my like sister's uh, like my sister's husband looks at her like so full of love. How do you not tell? And the camera like pans over to Nicolas Cage, and he's just got this really dumb look on his face, like not attractive at all, kind of just like confused, and like his eyebrows are furrowed, and like this is not a look of love at all. <laughs> I don't like him. Mm. I don't think. Careful, you're going to get canceled by my friend McKenna. She loves Nicolas Cage. Okay, but here's the thing. Like, his movies are not really my thing. Like, the yeah. like the types of movies that he does. Like, I have nothing against him personally, but, like, he's he doesn't star in movies that, like, I'm attracted to watching. He stars in movies that are kind of, like, for good for, like... For the boys. Yeah, exactly. And, like, good for 12 to 16-year-old boys, and then over 40-year-old men. <laughs> I think you're going to get more counseled by McKenna <laughs> than I am. <laughs> Sorry, McKenna, if you're listening. What have I been watching? I started watching The Alienist. Oh, my family used to watch that one. It's interesting. I'm not sure. I, I want to be into it, but I also don't think that I am. Mm. Like, I've watched a couple episodes, and I'm like, do I continue with this or just leave it? Yeah. 
but I want to like it because I've heard good things about it. But I just think it's like almost like too slow for me. Sometimes some shows like that people love and they're like, oh, like the first season you have to you just like get to the second season. And it's like, oh, I don't really want to wait through the entire first season for it yeah. to get good. Well, and the second season is like a different storyline. Like it's called something else. Oh, it's um, it's like one of those American Horror Story kind yeah. of things. So like, Anthology series, that's what it's called. Oh, I learned something new today. Did you ever watch The Haunting of Hill House? No, but I have heard of it. Okay, yeah, it's a Netflix original. So it was The Haunting of Hill House was the first one. And then um, The Haunting of Bly Manor was the second one. And it's an anthology series with like all the same actors or most of the same actors. But the third one came out recently and I watched that like all in one day, basically. It's called Midnight Mass. It's kind of like paranormal slash religious Hmm. it's set on like an island i guess somewhere on the east coast but it was actually filmed in stevenson oh interesting yep and mike and i saw it being filmed wow that's yeah i love stumbling across movie sets i know one time i i was walking on the street downtown vancouver and some like guy we thought I, I thought he was like an extra or like just a guy. But we were walking on the street, not even looking, not even like ogling at the set, and the the sidewalk wasn't closed off. And he was like, "We're trying to work here. Like, keep moving along." And I was like, "This is a sidewalk. I'm buddy. sorry, buddy. What are you an extra? What what do you get paid twelve dollars an hour to just stand there? That's kind of cool." But it's not your job to tell me where to go. Yeah. <laughs> he was just so rude. And we were like, what the heck? We weren't even standing. We were walking. He Maybe was in our was way, somebody actually. else that was behind you. No, he said it to us. Oh. Rude man. Yeah. Let me tell you about the show I've been watching, Megan. Okay. It's called Naked Attraction. Oh. <laughs> I have never <laughs> been so disturbed by a show in my entire life. It's like watching a car crash. You just can't stop. Watching TV in, I think this is the one where they just like fully show everything. Yeah, I was, okay, I understood that they were going to be naked on the show. I did not understand that we would be getting close-ups. I thought it was just going to be blurred out, like, you know, like the, like, box over their, like, a box over their private parts. (laughs) And I have seen too many things. Watching, like, you think TV everywhere is just, like, American and Canadian TV where, like, you don't even see boobs on TV unless it's past, like, 11 p.m. Go to Europe, all there is is boobs. Like, boobs everywhere on the television. And genitals, apparently. Because I'm sure that that that's a British show, right? Yeah. If it airs on TV, I am shocked. I think it does. There's four seasons of it. I'm shocked. I... Europeans are exposed. Maybe that's why, like, Europeans are more open about, like, in general. Yeah. They're more, like, Because they don't have the same, and, like, like, restrictions on the media yeah. that we do. So they grow up n- thinking nudity is normal. Yeah. You're European. Do you think nudity is normal? <laughs> okay. Here's something that I don't understand, though. Because, like, sometimes they'll, like, like, they'll have, like, the people, like, do an activity. 
on the show. It sounds like Love Island. Well, like they're in these boxes, and then like one of the like the last one that I watched, the guy was Turkish, and he was like, "Yeah, like my family, like we all like like at parties and stuff, we all dance." So the girl was like, "Show me your best belly dancing moves," and like all these people are like, like, and you can only see like up to like their chest, their chest, and like there's like some people who are like not even trying. I'm like, okay, I get that. Like, that might be embarrassing, but you're literally, I see every part of you right now. Like, I got a close-up of your JJ. I don't think, like, rocking your hips side to side. Is embarrassing. Is embarrassing. Like, you've already done something that's so much more uncomfortable. Like, just, like, dancing and letting loose. Yeah, probably, like, going on live TV bare, like, butt naked is probably the most embarrassing thing you could ever do. And anything you do after that is just means nothing. Yeah. It's just you should never be embarrassed ever again because you've hit the max. Yeah. And so you're you're set. Your parents probably could turn on the TV and see you by accident. It's I don't I don't get it. <laughs> um but that has been my source of entertainment for the last little bit. I like how you're just absolutely shocked but you're still watching it. Yeah, cuz it's like a train wreck. Oh, it's like you can't look away. Yeah. Funny. Anyway, should we pull our countries? I think we should. Okay. Okay, Tegan, do you want to know where you're going next week? Please. You're going to Serbia. Amazing. Do you want to know where I'm going? Obviously. <laughs> I'm going to Portugal. Whoa, Portugal Woo-hoo. the man. Um, yeah, you can follow us on Instagram at Destination Murder Pod. And um, how do you say goodbye in Spanish, Tegan? Ciao. There you go. In Jersey, they speak English, so goodbye. Talio. Cheerio. Anyways. Anyways. Goodbye. Bye. Arrivederci.